Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Wednesday, the 20th of January, 2021. Professor Nikolai Petrovsky shares his understanding of the current issues with the Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna and AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines that have been rolled out. He then expands on the possible role of the recombinant protein vaccine. These type of vaccines have a long track record of safety and Novavax will be the first recombinant protein vaccine to start reporting data in the next few months. Professor Petrovsky, please tell us about yourself. Hi, David. So I'm an a clin active clinician uh, and I specialize in endocrinology, uh, but I also approximately 25 years ago did a PhD in immunology and I've been doing vaccine development as my research uh, interest ever since. Um, so uh, I, I guess I'm pretty busy uh, across all the, those fronts. Well, Nikolai, let's start with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. It's all over the news about what's happened in Norway. What's your take on this? So we, we also always have to be careful because when vaccines are rolled out, you know, we, we expect there to be incidents. I mean, you know, even, even the safest vaccine will still cause some reaction. So I preface whatever I say with, you know, we, we need to be careful mm -hmm. um, not to, to overemphasize a, a potential issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, also we, we need to be careful because we have limited information. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm only, you know, have the privilege of the same information that you've probably seen. Uh, which is, is reasonably limited um, coming from the, the Norwegian government. Uh, what we do know is that in the first 40,000 or so people that were immunised in Norway with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, they were particularly focusing on the very elderly because they are the high-risk population if they uh, were to become exposed um, to, to the virus in terms mm -hmm. of very high mortality rates. Um, so they were focusing the vaccine on those sort of what we might call the, the very elderly being mm -hmm. the over 80 year olds. And what they have reported is uh, that of somewhere between 30 and 40 of these uh, elderly people died uh, you know, within days to weeks of having the, the Pfizer vaccine in the context, as I say, of about 40,000 people receiving the vaccine. So that, that is a rate of deaths of about one in a thousand of the people they vaccinated. That does sound very high. You know, when we look at, you know, vaccine associated death rates for, for normal approved vaccines, you know, uh, we're talking rates of less than one in a hundred thousand to one in a million. So, but we, of course, we don't know yet are all of these events caused by the vaccine. They certainly happened very, very soon after these people got the vaccine, they died. Uh, but of course, they were very elderly people. So some of them may have been in the process of, of dying, if we want to put it that way, uh, you know, already before they got the vaccine and, and so it was going to happen anyway. Um, 
So, so that's what we know. And, and, and obviously, we, we just have to be very careful, given that lim limited information that we don't, you know, go overboard in how we interpret that. But certainly, it is a concern. Uh, it does need to be investigated. And if it is confirmed, then I, you know, I think that uh, certainly there needs to be a warning label uh, on the vaccine for this type of population that maybe, it, you know, it's, it's contraindicated to give it to people who are, say, over the age of 80 years of age. And we have to remember the phase three trials didn't really test the vaccine in those populations. So when they say the vaccine was you know, highly safe in the, in the phase three trials, we have to remember it was only safe for those people who were enrolled in the trials. And by and large, they weren't these very elderly people. I guess I have two questions, um, Nikolai. Uh, it seems to be just a factor of age. So 78 is fine, 80 is not. Are we talking about age or are we more concerned about the uh, immune status uh, or coexisting disease. So, are they? Is it immunosuppression or the inability to mount challenge, or is it because they have other existing disease, or is it purely because they're old? So, David, at the moment, we simply don't know because we don't have the data. Other than that, you know, mm -hmm. the Norwegian government did say that this was a frail population, mm -hmm. so it did suggest uh, they may have had other comorbidities. What, what they did tell us is that they had done post-mortems already on a considerable number of these uh, people who died after having the vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they said is that there, were, there was evidence that the deaths were related to what you might expect as the typical side effects of the vaccine, which was interesting in the sense we know that the mRNA vaccines are very, very inflammatory. And they cause a very high rate of fevers and uh, flu-like symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so my interpretation from that would be that they found evidence of inflammation, uh, particularly, say, in the arteries, in the brain or in the hearts uh, of these elderly people who had the vaccine. And their explanation was that the, the vaccine side effect, which we know is inflammation, was was causing these people to either have heart attacks or strokes mm -hmm. again they haven't actually told us what exactly they died of but that would be my uh, guess from what they have said very interesting it kind of makes me wonder about people who already have uh, existing inflammatory diseases like autoimmune diseases and um, how they might go with it but again it's just a thought yes and and you know we have to be careful as as clinicians you know when when we do clinical trials they're often you know those those rarer conditions are all excluded you know if, if you have a, a an autoimmune condition or you've had a kidney transplant mm -hmm. uh you know if you're 90 years of age generally you won't be allowed into the clinical trials so the problem for clinicians is you know how do we determine if the vaccine is safe for those people if the trial never tested it in those populations. Uh -huh. and, and I think this is what we're seeing is that, you know, if you start rolling a vaccine out in populations different to the ones in the clinical trial, 
then there may be populations where the vaccine is completely contraindicated. And mm. as you say, that could be people who have autoimmune disease. It could be people with uh, other inflammatory diseases. It could be people um, who have you know, existing heart disease or are very frail and elderly because typically those people aren't allowed into the clinical trials uh, when they're assessing uh, the vaccine, uh, you know, in the early stages. Now, staying on this particular vaccine, um, Nikolai, have you heard any more about any allergies or anything reported? So certainly in terms of, of allergy, um, you know, we know that the mRNA vaccines are causing um, a higher than normal rate of allergy and, and all, all the way through to the most severest form, which is anaphylaxis. And, you know, that's been reported in the clinical trials. It's been reviewed by the FDA and they continue to review it um, because, uh, you know, it is a concern. Uh, they've recommended that anyone who has a allergic reaction to the first dose of any of the mRNA vaccines not be given a subsequent dose because of the fear that, again, um, you know, they may have an even worse reaction uh, the second time round. Uh, and, you know, they've recommended that no one receive those vaccines if you don't have adrenaline okay. available on site to resuscitate them if they were to have an anaphylactic reaction. So, okay. uh, fortunately, uh, you know, um, most cases of anaphylaxis are reversible by adrenaline. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, in, in that case, um, you can resuscitate the patients. But, but obviously, it is a concern, I think, particularly for, say, remote, uh, you know, uh, clinics which uh, don't have easy access to resuscitation, you know, that, that may be an issue, particularly for those mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. Now, moving away from the Pfizer vaccines, have you heard any recent reports of how the Moderna vaccine's going? You know, the, the, the Moderna vaccine, uh, I, I think, you know, is, is really going on a par with the Pfizer vaccine. You know, they, they had both had the early success in preventing symptoms, you know, of over 90%, which set them apart from mm -hmm. some of the other vaccines uh, in development, uh, particularly the AstraZeneca uh, and some of the Chinese inactivated vaccines, which had much, much lower rates of uh, protection against symptoms. Uh, but, but similarly, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines seem to have suffered from a lot of the same problems. Um, you know, the, the increased risk of, of allergy, you know, the high rate of side effects and fever, uh, you know, seem to be common to them. So I really do see the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines in part and parcel. I mean, I think they're very, very similar mm -hmm. uh, vaccines, both in terms of their effectiveness, but also in terms of their, their side effect profile. Uh, and, but nothing specific to the Moderna that's happened recently that we should be aware of? Look, I think, again, it, uh, you know, the allergic you know, reactions, uh, as far as I'm aware, are still one of the, the major concerns. I'm, mm -hmm. I, I haven't seen anything recently unique to the Moderna vaccine that, that as I say, that wouldn't have been reported for the Pfizer vaccine as well. Uh, moving on to the AstraZeneca fairly quickly. Which dosing schedule are they using, Nikolai? And is it um, the, the half dose, full strength, second dose? That's the first question. And the second is that the UK is delaying the second shot by not by many weeks. 
so what do you think of these two things? Well, you know, again, the, the phase three data, which was cobbled together from four different phase three studies. So it's, okay. it's, it's an, almost a meta-analysis, you know, reported that the efficacy of the people who received the planned dose of vaccine was only 62% against yeah. Um, yeah. symptoms. And uh, then they had this unusual group where they, you know, mistakenly gave them the wrong dose. So they got a, about half of the planned dose for the first dose, and then they got the full dose for the second dose. That was a, a, a small group because obviously they recognised the mistake and then uh, gave everyone the, the full dose. Mm -hmm. uh, but when they, they analysed the data, they noted that, you know, it appeared that the this weird or mistaken half dose group had had a ninety percent uh, reduction in 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 symptomatic infections, um, and they made a lot of song and dance about that. But of course, because it wasn't a pre-specified event, in fact, statistically, you can't say anything. You, you have to scrap those people and not count them. Mm -hmm. in in your efficacy analysis so mm -hmm. so it's very misleading to claim that you have a 90 percent effect when when you didn't specify that group in the first place so mm -hmm. so that essentially overall the astrazeneca had a 62 percent uh, effectiveness which was disappointingly low when you compare it to mm -hmm. to 95 percent or so for moderna and and pfizer so i think you know we have to be honest about that the other disappointing thing from the AstraZeneca trial data that we can see is that it, it didn't provide really any protection against infection. So when we talk about the effectiveness of these vaccines, we're talking about their effectiveness in blocking symptoms. We're not talking about their effectiveness in preventing infection. Mm -hmm. um, and so, in terms of the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, it, it showed no evidence that it was preventing infection mm. uh, in, in the subjects. And I think that's a very important negative. When we look at the, the Pfizer and, and the Moderna data, although it wasn't, you know, again, it, it, it wasn't, the trials weren't powered to look at it, mm -hmm. um, there did seem to be some effect on re reduction in, in infections much more modest than what they were showing for symptoms. So the, I think, you know, they were looking at 30 to 50% potential reduction in infections. But I think that's a very big distinction still uh, to the AstraZeneca, which wasn't showing any effect. And of course, if we want a vaccine that blocks transmission, because that will ultimately stop the, the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, then we need a vaccine that has a high level of protection against infection. And and as I say, we're not seeing that, certainly for the AstraZeneca vaccine, we may be seeing a weak effect uh, in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Wow. That, that's just quite mind-blowing, what you just said. Um, well, I think, I think, again, you know, and I, I guess this is the difficulty, is that when people talk about headline effectiveness rates, you know, they rarely clarify what they mean by, you know, what is, how, what, what is a vaccine effectiveness measured by? And, and as I say, there are the two separate measures. One is, does it stop infection? 
And in this case, the answer is no. Uh, the other is, does it stop symptoms? You know, so you get an infection, but now you don't get symptoms. And the answer is yes. Um, you know, to greater or lesser extent, uh, the vaccines have been reducing symptoms. And of course, the other critical measure of effectiveness, which hasn't been talked about, is do they prevent people dying or going to intensive care? And again, the trials weren't powered to answer those questions, uh, but it does appear that there is a reduction in, uh, in, in number of deaths, certainly in the Pfizer study, I think it was 10 versus one. Um, which is promising, but but obviously, you know, statistically, the, the trials weren't powered to answer that question. So, so that's something that, again, we need to watch uh, in future data. Nicola, I have a problem with what you just said, in the sense that if you are able to reduce symptoms in infected people with the vaccines, is it possible that those people with mild symptoms may actually be spreading it and so rather than trying to if you like reduce transmission there is a small possibility that it could actually increase transmission in the community well that's certainly my concern i've been trying to communicate that to the government when they talk about immunizing for instance uh, people working in aged care facilities mm -hmm. as opposed to immunizing the people who uh, actually residents of the aged care facility. Mm -hmm. So I'm strongly in support of immunising the residents of the aged care facilities, um, because obviously that hopefully would mean if they get infected, you know, they're less likely to die from the infection. Mm -hmm. The problem of immunising the, the people working in the aged care facility is you're going to take potentially symptomatic uh, people who, you know, hopefully would have symptoms, would get tested and be taken out of the facility mm -hmm. so they don't mm -hmm. infect the residents. And you're now making them asymptomatic, but they still may be carrying the virus into the aged care facility mm -hmm. unknowingly and, again, putting the residents at risk. So there's a very strong argument that uh, it's a bit like the canary in the coal mine, that those people really need to know if... if if they, they possibly infected. And the best way for them to know is to have symptoms. Um, and mm. so it, they certainly shouldn't be the first group you're vaccinating, because as you say, you may actually make the problem worse rather than better, because now people will be carrying the virus and not knowing they're carrying it. And of course, that's, that's much more concerning uh, because it may risk, increase the risk of transmission to the people who you don't want to get the virus being those who are vulnerable. And so, so I think, yes, we do need to be careful if the vaccine is not preventing infection and transmission, that we don't give it to the wrong people. And, mm. and looking at the current policies, I think they, they are maybe not discriminating between the people at risk and also the people at risk of transmitting it to those people at risk one should be vaccinated, arguably the other is better left unvaccinated for the time being. Very good point. However, I also get the point that uh, in the aged care facilities, you can't immunise the ones over age 80. So you've got a problem, at least with the mRNA vaccines. 
Exactly. And that's why I think, you know, we need as many different vaccine technologies as possible. I think the government really have just, again, tried to pick winners uh, that were convenient and easy because they were being backed by other governments. So, you know, it was easy to piggyback on that. But but I do think that each vaccine has its 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 benefits and its limitations. Mm, mm. And, and we, you know, the more different technologies we have, the more we can tailor the different vaccines to the different population groups and make sure that we're always delivering benefit. Um, because as I say, it's not a one shoe fits all solution. And I'm very much, you know, some people have said, why aren't we just giving everyone the Pfizer vaccine? Well, for the reasons you've heard, you know, potentially that's not a good thing to do in the over 80 year olds or, you know, the, the, the frail and elderly. As well as that, that vaccine is not approved for people under the age of 16. So that leaves about yeah, half the yeah. population, you know, at the moment who, who wouldn't receive that vaccine. So, yeah. so we, we, we do need a multiplicity of vaccines out yeah. there uh, to address all of these different scenarios. I must say that as a GP, I'm beginning to feel like that. Um, seeing, for example, that the AstraZeneca had some evidence of transverse myelitis, so neurological issues. Um, so I'm thinking, um, gee, am I going to start asking patients, meaning um, horses for courses, um, Nikolai, like you're saying, uh, we, we actually got to start thinking more specifically about the patient and then tailoring the vaccine to them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as clinicians, we do that for, for every other disease. You know, if we're treating with someone with hypertension, we'll think, mm. you know, well, they have diabetes, we should probably put them on an ACE inhibitor. Mm. You know, if, if they're perfectly healthy and younger, you know, we'll think, well, we should put them on a calcium channel blocker because it will have less side effects. You know, so, so as clinicians, we're doing that all the time. You know, it's not that mm. we just use the one antihypertensive medication. We, we have a whole range of them and we pick the right one for each patient, you know, to make sure they get the most benefit and, and the least side effects and risk. And, you know, vaccines in a way, particularly for COVID, are no different. That I think, you know, it is about tailoring the right vaccine to, to the right person mm -hmm. and individual to give them the best benefits, and as I say, to give them the, the least yep. risks. Let's move on to the last questions I have for you, which are the Vexar protein-based vaccines. Uh, I want to speak about what's happening with the Novavax, what you, have you heard, and I'd like to know how you're going with yours. Absolutely. So, you know, the, I guess there's a number of, of recombinant protein-based vaccines that are in development. None have yet announced a headline phase three result. So, so we're, we're still waiting with bated breath and Novavax should be the first of the protein-based vaccines to report, uh, hopefully in the next few months, uh, the outcome of their phase three study. So that will be very exciting. Um, and, and will really, I guess, open up, you know, where they fit uh, relative to the mRNA and relative to, to some of the other, the inactivated and, and also the, the viral vector vaccines, mm -hmm. you know, that headline result, people will be slotting it in and saying, you know, can, can they do better or equal to the mRNA? We know the protein-based approaches are much, much safer. You know, mm -hmm. we've given them to billions of people. 
with incredibly high safety. Um, you know, we, we give protein-based vaccines to 90 and 100-year-olds, and we certainly don't see any deaths. So, mm -hmm. um, so we know even if you're very frail and elderly, these, these protein-based vaccines should be very safe. But we just don't know yet what their headline effectiveness mm. is, in number is going to be. Hopefully, it will be up there with the, the best of them. Um, so as I say, Novavax should, should give us the first readout. Sanofi are the other big competitor of ours. They've just had a setback and, and have announced um, that they weren't happy with the immunogenicity of their protein-based vaccine. Uh, and that set them back about a year. So they're expecting wow. to, to now go into phase three, I think, towards the end of this year, rather than they were hoping to do it uh, about now. We're, we're moving forward slowly, uh, unfortunately not as fast as Novavax. We don't have several billion dollars uh, of support behind us from the government like they do. So, mm -hmm. so that does help them in moving much faster. Um, you know, we've learned an enormous amount over the last 12 months. I mean, you know, we've done a phase one clinical trial. Um, we've done a lot of animal studies. Uh, mm -hmm. We're learning all the time. Uh, we now believe we have a very good uh, vaccine candidate mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, we would like to, to move it forward in clinical development uh, into phase two and phase three clinical trials. Uh, and the challenge, of course, is, is really finding the resources uh, to do that. Uh, and also we'll have to do that overseas because uh, we need to, to take the vaccine to countries which actually have a lot of uh, infection. Uh, okay. which fortunately we don't in Australia. So, so that, that's going to take quite some doing. Mm. Uh, we're still hoping that we'll be able to do all of that this year. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, as I say, uh, in that sense, uh, be in front of Sanofi, uh, even if we're following Novavax. Um, so, uh, you know, again, we're hopeful uh, that the protein-based approaches will ultimately prove to be the winners because they really do have such an exceptional safety record. Mm. But as I say, what we now have to, have to prove is that we can get the same effectiveness or better uh, than we're seeing with the mRNA vaccines. And hopefully we'll start to see some data to, to tell us where they sit uh, within the next few months. Well, I tell you what, I would love to see the uh, recombinant protein vaccines actually protect people from transmitting the disease and not hide or camouflage the disease. Well, interestingly, David, you know, that's what our animal studies seem to be telling us. Um, now, it's early days and, and you know, we've done studies in, in ferrets and, and also in monkeys, which are two of the better models. Uh, not, you know, we, we, we've struggled to find really good animal models of this disease. It's particularly human specific. Um, but in those models, we did see clearance of the virus, not just from the lungs like the other vaccines have shown, but also clearance from the nose, uh, which, you know, the Oxford vaccine didn't show in mm. their monkey studies. Um, so, as I say, that that's uh, just preliminary data. We, we now have to do studies where we show the vaccinated animals can't transmit the virus mm. to, to naive animals. Mm. But if we're able to show that, then I think that that could well be a game changer because we really do need uh, vaccines that block transmission. And as I say, the current candidates 
if they do that, they're quite weak at that. They, they seem better at blocking the symptoms. So, so as I say, that, that would be a fantastic outcome if the protein-based vaccines can actually be shown to block transmission. But as I say, it's early days and we don't want to, you know, uh, as I say, uh, uh, you know, be, be too enthusiastic without having the data mm. to prove that. So well, um, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to collect that uh, in coming months. I, I can't help but be excited as well a little bit. So I'll try and hold it back, Nicola. Um, however, I just want to ask the last question before you go. So let's just say that I end up with a vaccine, whether it be Vactor or mRNA-based, and then um, the protein, recovering the protein become available and I change my mind and I tell my GP, actually, I don't want to have a second shot of what I did. I want to have the protein uh, vaccine. What's the problem with that? Well, hopefully there's no problem with that. And, you know, we have combined uh, vaccines in the past, which are protein based uh, with a variety of other prime uh, vaccines, uh, viral vectors, uh, nucleic acids, uh -huh. um, inactivated viruses. And uh -huh. the protein vaccines are beautiful boosters, um, again, because of their safety and their lack of side effects you know, they seem to work extremely well, regardless of what you've given as the first dose of vaccine. You know, so I would be very hopeful uh, that, in fact, that may be another role for the protein vaccines to come in. If, if you have the mRNA vaccine, have an allergic reaction to the first dose, what do you do? Mm, um, mm, you mm. know, and, and the obvious answer is, well, have a protein booster because we don't share any of our components with the mRNA. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, you know, you won't get the allergic response to the protein. Um, so... You know, I think there is a role for, for the protein, if, if we show it's effective, to be used as a booster for the other, uh, for people who've had the other vaccines. Uh, but of course, you know, we have to do the clinical trials and we uh -uh. have to prove that uh, to everyone's satisfaction. And that takes more resources again, mm -hmm. uh, because we have to find people who've had the other vaccines and get them into our trials and then give them uh, protein as a booster. I think mm -hmm. it's something that should be done but again, it's, it's, it, the problem of doing it is just one of, of having resources to, to allow you to do those clinical trials and prove the, the benefits and the safety, because obviously both those things are vitally important. Well, you have just wet my appetite for more news, Nikolai. So I'll have to wait that few months before Novavax uh, comes up with their first lots of results. And then I'd love to speak with you again. Absolutely. I'll be very happy. To, and as I say, I'm waiting for those Novavax uh, results with bated breath because, you know, our vaccine is right there. It's very similar uh, to the Novavax approach. So if they get a good result, then, then that will really be very encouraging for us. And I hope somebody will reach very deep into their pockets and back you guys then. Absolutely. <laughs> Always a pleasure to talk to you, Nikolai. Thank you for your time. It's a real pleasure, David. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. 
HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.